just a reminder, here at That's So Chronic, we are dedicated to sharing personal stories. We are not advocating any type of treatment, therapy, procedure or intervention. Everyone is unique, so please seek professional medical advice before making any decisions for yourself or for others. Welcome to That's So Chronic, the podcast where I, Jess Bryan, interview some incredible people from around the world that are thriving and sometimes only just surviving with chronic illnesses, life-changing injuries and potentially disastrous diagnoses. Today I am chatting to Cheyenne Wellam and we talk about her diagnosis of hypermobile Alice Danlos syndrome and living life with an ostomy bag. In this episode Cheyenne explains what EDS is, the 10-year journey to her finally getting a diagnosis, the life-changing decision to go through ileostomy surgery, the toll this has all had on her mental health and why she's dedicated to sharing her story. Cheyenne admits that she has been a long time That's So Chronic listener, so it was very exciting finally getting to meet one another and record this interview. Welcome to That's So Chronic. If people are following That's So Chronic on Instagram, they might recognize you. You did a little takeover on the That's So Chronic stories, explaining more about what Alice Danlos syndrome is. But today, we get to hear all about you and your story with hypermobile Alice Danlos syndrome, as well as living life with an ileostomy bag. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Jess, for having me on the podcast. I'm such a massive, massive fan of That's So Chronic, and it feels really full circle to be on here as a guest. Yay! I guess to start with, if people haven't seen the Instagram takeover, how would you describe what EDS is? Yeah, it's a great question. So not many people have actually heard of Alice Danlos or EDS. Yeah. And basically what it is, is it's a genetic condition that affects the structure and the processing of collagen in the body. Yeah. And collagen is basically, you can think of it sort of like the building blocks for a lot of different parts of the body, like your ligaments, muscles, bones, organs, all of that good stuff. So if there's a problem with the collagen or the building blocks, it can cause really varied problems throughout the body. And the effects of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome can vary wildly from person to person. And in fact, there are 13 different types of Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. Mm-hmm. So the type that I have is called hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. But there's lots of other ones that are even more rare and they are very different from each other. Yeah. And it is a genetic condition, isn't it? It is indeed. So we think that I might have gotten it passed down from my mum, but it's kind of difficult to tell. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it kind of just doesn't even pay to let your brain go down that path of like, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes it can happen. Um, I don't know if spontaneous is the right word, but yeah. can happen that way rather than yeah. um, coming directly from a parent. Okay. So let's start all the way at the beginning of your story. When did you start to notice symptoms that looking back now you can go, oh yeah, that was the EDS? Yeah, this is really interesting. So I think the first 
sign well it's a sign that I recognize now as you say yeah sort of came to light when I was maybe nine or ten so I was in my kind of later years of primary school and I think I was walking I don't know walking in front of my mum or something I don't know where we were going and she noticed that one of my shoulders was a lot higher than the oh. other one and you know she obviously like felt the shoulder and she was like, it's really really like tense it just doesn't feel right you're only little yeah. like it's not quite normal so we went to the doctor went to the gp and she was like mm, yeah something's not quite right and referred me to i think it was um the sports medicine clinic here in auckland that okay help with you know like structural issues like that and at the time they didn't really think too much of it they were like yeah she's really really flexible like my shoulders could pop in and out like i could do all sorts of crazy i guess you could say party tricks yeah <laughs> but that was kind of all that they said they, they um said that my shoulders were really lax and just to do some basic physio and i was kind of just sent on my way ah. yeah and then throughout the rest of my life that kind of flexibility became more apparent in yeah. every part of my body mm -hmm. so not just the shoulders but my hips my fingers elbows everything and in some way at the time it was beneficial because I did gymnastics yeah <laughs> yeah so that flexibility was somewhat of an asset to me yeah except for the fact that my body really should not have been that flexible and it yeah. was to the point where it was quite dangerous. And what inspired you to start trying to work out why this might be happening? Yeah, so all of these first signs were kind of separate from the main event. Okay. Which is what led me to, you know, look into this and really get an answer. Because yeah. alongside, or I guess after all of this happened, when I was... 14 or 15 so mid high school I started experiencing some pretty severe tummy problems mm -hmm. and obviously being a teenager at the time it was really really embarrassing what I was yeah. dealing with so it almost I don't know if it came on overnight but it was very clearly happened in those kind of couple early teen years I started experiencing a real urgency to need to go to the bathroom I think yeah. that was my first sign and that's so tough at school because I don't know exactly when you were at school but it was a lot like a thing for a really long time that you had to ask permission to go to the bathroom I actually had it even worse so I went to a really strict school yeah <laughs> and there were a couple of teachers at my school that didn't even allow you to drink water in the classroom <gasps> out of fear that you might need to use the toilet. Oh my God. Yeah. So you can imagine for a young Cheyenne that had tummy issues that that became a real problem. Yeah. And I didn't have the maturity to tell anyone no. what was wrong. And I'm sure that if I, if I had, then they would have understood, but yeah. you know, hindsight is 2020. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard when you're like 14, 15 years old. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. So I think the urgency was my first main symptom yeah. and kind of the bowel area. Yeah. And when I say urgent, I mean, yeah. by the time I felt it, 
I really should have gone, yeah. you know, a little while ago. Yeah. And combined with that, I was experiencing a lot of frequency with needing to go to the toilet, sort of, you know, 10 times a day. Yeah, wow. And tummy cramps and just all of that horrible stuff. Yeah. Were you able to talk to anyone that this was going on for you? Yeah. I mean, my mum and dad were super, super helpful and understanding. But in terms of the doctors, they really didn't know what to do with me or really even cared at all. When we first went to the doctors, we did the obvious test to see, you know, if there were you know, like that inflammation markers to see if I might have um, IBD or an inflammatory bowel disease mm-hmm. because I had a lot of those symptoms. Yeah. And that was quickly ruled out. And basically, if you've got bowel problems, doctors really like to put you in boxes. Yeah. And because I didn't have IBD, so ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, they thought, well, you must just have IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, yeah. which is the classic. Yeah. It's kind of the diagnosis, I say, in inverted commas that you get when people just don't really want to look any further. Yeah. And ultimately that turned out to be completely incorrect. <laughs> wow. So they kind of diagnose you with IBS and then do they kind of just send you on, on your way or are they like, we'll do some checkups or change your diet or anything like that? I tried everything under the sun, honestly. I had multiple colonoscopies, endoscopies, you know, tried every diet, gluten-free, dairy-free, salicylate-free, saw a psychologist because they kept blaming it on stress, (sighs) which is, yeah, a really common thing, especially for women. And yeah. I probably underplayed my symptoms when I was describing them to you before, but this was really impacting yeah. my daily life. Yeah. It affected everything down to my social life or lack thereof, I guess. Yeah. And even what I was able to study at university, I had to do distance learning because I couldn't be in a lecture theatre for three or four hours. That just was impossible. And so this goes on for years. This goes on for years and years. And that wasn't even the worst of it. So things really took a turn in, I would say, late 2019. And I was losing a lot of weight from going to the bathroom so much. I was in a lot of pain the urgency was getting even worse to the point where unfortunately I was dealing with incontinence yeah which you know especially for a young female it's really difficult to deal with yeah um, I had an accident in the workplace which was just yeah completely soul destroying and it came to the point where I actually decided to leave my job okay because I just wasn't coping with any of this whatsoever. Yeah. And alongside this sort of time frame, obviously, came March 2020. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all know what happened yeah. then. And I I don't want to say blessing in disguise, but in a way, I thought maybe my symptoms would improve because yeah. we were in lockdown. Yeah. We were at home. Yeah. The bathroom was right nearby there was no like barriers to access and I thought 
well, if things are going to get better for any reason, surely it will be now yeah. when a lot of the stress of having to leave the house is lifted. Yeah. And it makes sense, right? Yeah, definitely. Did it get better? It absolutely did not. Things okay. continued to get worse and worse and worse to the point where I was in my GP's office having a complete mental breakdown yeah saying that I can't continue like this no. and that that was the truth of the matter I was unable to leave the house I couldn't even do basic chores like going to the grocery store because yeah. I was too afraid and likely to have an accident and yeah it was no way to live at all and also grocery stores just do not have toilets on display at all ever they don't. like such a no. side note but <laughs> like where is the toilet at the supermarket like no one knows and you raise a really good point because public toilets in general are really quite difficult to find yeah. a lot of the time even sometimes if you ask like at a cafe or whatever that you haven't necessarily bought from people are really hesitant to let you use it and yeah. for someone with a disability like myself or even just anyone in general I think that that's really wrong yeah it's strange that we have such a it's like such a big deal needing to yeah, go to the bathroom exactly. when literally everyone does it Everybody like every does. single day yeah. <laughs> for sure so things really get worse during 2020 and, and during lockdown from the pandemic yeah. you're at your GP's office do they mm -hmm. decide that okay we need to get to the bottom of this yeah and to my, to my credit or to my luck, I had an amazing GP that really took it seriously okay. when she saw how badly my mental health was affected. Yeah. I think that was kind of like the final straw for her that, yep, we, although we think that we've tried everything under the sun, we need to keep pushing harder and harder. Yeah. And before I continue, there were even more things that we tried that had no effect, like going on um, amitriptyline mm -hmm. and nortriptyline because we thought maybe there was something wrong with the yeah. nerves down there. Yeah. And that was just to, to no benefit, unfortunately. Yeah. But yeah, ultimately my GP got, to, got me to see a colorectal surgeon. Okay. So that is a surgeon that specializes in the colon and the rectum, which the name suggests. Yeah. Very, very glamorous job. Yeah. <laughs> And I went to see them and that's kind of where the wheels started turning in the right direction. Okay, so what were they able to do? So, like I said, I thought at this point that we had done every scan and every yeah. test under the sun. But when I went there, the first thing that he got me to do, and this is really TMI, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I'm ready for it. <laughs> is a scan called a defecating proctogram okay and if you haven't heard about what one of those is yeah it's probably for good reason because it is not a nice scan to have yeah basically the radiologist not injects but inserts contrast kind of it looks like toothpaste almost so it's yeah. quite thick into your bottom mm -hmm. and you sit on a little fake toilet and they do an x-ray while you poo it out wow Yes. I did not know that that was a thing. I know, neither did I until I heard about it. And yeah, I mean, in all honesty, they made it really um, 
a comfortable experience despite it being not something that you'd sign up to do (laughs) wow and and what are they able to test for when they're doing this so it's it's not a static x-ray that they do it's kind of like a a video i guess they take a whole movie and see how um the muscles and the the rectum is kind of like performing per se as you're going to the bathroom and that was kind of the light bulb moment that put everything that I've talked about together because wow I know what they saw on that proctogram or x-ray is that my pelvic organs were completely in the wrong places um I had multiple prolapses down there like not sort of your old lady one where it's like coming out but like prolapsing side to side and the whole area was way too stretchy like things were just going in places that they shouldn't and yeah the radiologist asked me like have you had kids and I said no i i haven't why do you ask and he said well we only really see this kind of effect for someone that's typically old is overweight and has had several really large babies because it looks like you've had trauma to the area okay and of course um, neither of those three things so i explained that to him and he could see that you know, yeah. I was a relatively <laughs> slim person as well. So he was like kind of a bit weirded out by the whole thing. And his, it was his tip off that sent my GP in the right direction because he said, the only other reason that we might see something like this is if you had a connective tissue disorder. Yeah. Wow. So it was a real light bulb moment, as I say, because I knew what had happened when I was younger and I'd I'd sort of had the same feedback from doctors about my joint mobility and being way too flexible. And yeah, it it was the first time that all the pieces really came together. But before that, who would have thought that, you know, a dislocating shoulder would have anything to do with tummy problems or your bowel it's kind of crazy yeah what are the next steps to be able to then get a diagnosis of eds like is your gp able to diagnose that i maybe they can but i was referred to a rheumatologist okay so i don't really know too much about about rheumatology but no i and i don't really think a lot of people do it's a really poorly (laughs) misunderstood yeah yeah um specialty but i know that they do look after connective tissue disorders and that's why i was sent there and yeah that is where they performed the um i guess you could call it an assessment to to check for all of the signs of hypermobile ehlers danlos syndrome and the first obvious ones for me were the joint dislocations and hypermobility but mm-hmm. also the pelvic organ prolapses Okay, was the big red flag. And once I was there, we realized that I actually had a lot of the other features like skin hyperextensibility and unusually mm-hmm. soft skin, um, dental crowding, a strange arm span to height ratio. Okay. All of these kind of weird things that it, it takes a special kind of doctor, in this case it was my GP, 
um, and the rheumatologist to kind of go, oh yeah, everything that you're experiencing is connected and there's a reason for this. How did it feel when you then finally had a name for what was going on for you? It was a combination of relief to know that it wasn't all in my head. But at the same time, I was really quite angry at how long it took and kind of the mishaps that had happened along the way. Yeah. From onset of the serious bowel problems at 14 to diagnosis at 24, obviously that that was a decade of suffering. And for me to have been referred to a psychologist before even getting to see the rheumatologist. Yeah. You know, that kind of felt like a bit of a slap in the face that people were painting it as, you know, something in my head rather than being a legitimate concern. And like 10 years to a lot of people listening will just sound absolutely ridiculous. Like, how is that even possible? But that's actually almost common for EDS isn't it? It is and for a lot of other conditions I know it's the time frame is quite similar for endometriosis as well the the time for to diagnosis is really really shocking and that's not unique to New Zealand either and it just makes me so mad and disappointed that there are others like me that have gone through something so horrible and it's taken so long to get validation if at all i mean there are so many people out there that never even get a diagnosis and are are just struggling to this day yeah before we carry on with the interview i wanted to quickly jump in and say a big thank you to you for listening and ask for a super quick favor whether you're tuning in on spotify apple podcasts or another one of your favorite podcast apps it would mean the world if you could leave a rating or a review that really helps that so chronic reach more ears around the world to hopefully spread awareness and more importantly hope and it also just really makes my day if i'm honest all right back to the interview what are the next steps moving forward then are they able to help treat your symptoms yes but not in not in a way that that you would expect like yeah once you kind of get the diagnosis you think okay well you know, surely there's a real clear outline yeah. to resolution. And as you know, that is that is never the case. So once they figured out exactly what was going on with my bowel and the stretchy tissue and the prolapses, the first thing that they did was send me to a pelvic floor physiotherapist okay. to see if any of the alternate therapies would help to strengthen up any of the tissues down there. So in that we did a lot of kind of out of the box stuff. Something that I tried was called sacral nerve stimulation, okay. where you wear this almost patch on your tailbone and it shoots electrical impulses into wow. the sacral nerve, which controls a lot of the bladder and bowel function. Yeah. And unfortunately that didn't work for me. And that whole that didn't work for me as a common theme with everything okay. that we tried I'm afraid yeah um, we tried something glorious called balloon therapy where yeah. the balloon goes you know where 
and they fill it up and see if you can like withstand that and that was meant to help strengthen and avoid incontinence and after I think it was close to a year of trying all of these therapies absolutely nothing was changing and that was when I and the colorectal surgeon reached the final straw and came to an agreement together that the best option for my quality of life was to get an ileostomy which is a massive massive life decision to make especially at a young age and for a lot of people getting an ileostomy or an ostomy bag is something that comes as a an absolute last resort and in an emergency situation and Mm -hmm. while it was good to have been given the choice that is it's such a monumental thing to have to come come to terms with and figure out if that was the right decision for me and if I was making the right choices yeah did you know anybody else that had an ileostomy or or an ostomy bag not personally but the first thing that I did when it was brought up as an option is go on Instagram yeah yeah because like a lot of people I sort of had this perception or stigma I guess you could say about it being an old person's thing and I think a lot of people think that the way that ostomy bags are portrayed in you know tv or movies it's always someone's grandma or or grandpa and I'm still really young so I headed to Instagram and immediately a lot of my fears were resolved in a way because which was really really good I saw a lot of people that looked like me that were thriving with an ileostomy they were doing all the things that I couldn't do they were working going um having fun with their friends traveling yeah and all of that was essentially not on my radar so yeah. it kind of helped me to see that although it's no one's first choice to to get an ostomy bag that life could be totally possible with one and in fact yeah. a whole hell of a lot better yeah and especially when you're right in the trenches going through all of that a lot of those things seem really impossible Yes. And it's like, oh, well, that's never going to happen. But then when you actually see people, it's so powerful. Yeah. yeah. And it was a big mind shift for me as well, because I had spent so long thinking and almost believing that things would never get better because yeah. I hadn't been shown or experienced anything that had the potential to make things better. Like yeah. no treatments had worked. We weren't getting anywhere with anything diagnosis had taken so long so it was kind of this moment like oh I can see how this might make things better and I'm willing to give it a go so you do eventually go through with this procedure if someone's listening and they have absolutely no idea what on earth we're talking about how would you describe what the surgery is or how an ostomy bag works I guess yeah cool so Basically, an ileostomy is where they take your small intestine, so your ileum, so hence the name ileostomy, and they thread it out through your tummy, so it sticks out of your body about maybe an inch, Mm -hmm. and from there, you stick an ostomy bag or a stoma bag over the top on your skin, and that is where your waste collects into. So rather than going to the toilet through your bum, 
you're actually going to the toilet through that bit of intestine that sticks out of your tummy and that goes into the bag. Yeah. So the bag is then emptied into the toilet and you just go on with your regular life living like that. Yeah. And what does... I guess the surgery time, like how did you recover from the surgery? What was the whole process? Yeah, my uh, surgery process was not ideal. I actually had a complication Mm. which ended up being quite serious. And yeah, I guess to start off, my surgery was postponed, I think two or three times because of COVID. So, which is another common thing. And you like build yourself up for that as well like you know this is quite a life-changing thing that you're about to do and then for the freaking pandemic to get in the way oh no yeah it was that whole cycle of getting my hopes up and feeling mentally yeah. prepared that it was going to happen you know next week or in a couple days time and then yeah you just get the rug pulled out from under you and you're completely in the dark as to when it might happen yeah. like would it be another week or another month or even this year so that kind of few month period was really stressful and again I'm totally not alone in any of that the amount of people that have suffered with delays and even getting initial appointments let alone surgery is astronomical because of the pandemic and my heart just goes out to anyone and everyone that's struggling with similar things because it sucks (laughs) let me tell you yeah (laughs) yeah yeah But eventually it did happen. So I had my ileostomy surgery on the 4th of October of last year. So I'm actually only nine months in, so it's still kind of early days. But yeah, went in for the surgery. So that was done at a private hospital. So I was lucky enough to have the first one done privately. Mm -hmm. And the actual procedure, um, it's, it's not as long as you might think. I think it was, oh gosh, I'm probably gonna get this wrong, but maybe three or four hours it it okay. wasn't too significant in terms yeah. of of timing and wheeled into surgery and wheeled out with a bag attached to my tummy wow. so the first thing is kind of hyping yourself up to even look at it because yeah. it's a massive shift in how you see your body and yeah, yeah it, it's something really big to wrap your head around so had a look at the bag and I think I dealt with it okay. I've heard a lot of people cry when they look at it for the first time, which is totally understandable. But I really just tried to maintain a positive mindset that this was for, you know, a better outcome for me and a better quality of life. So the first night, things seemed to be going all good. And then immediately woke up the next morning and started profusely vomiting. Oh, no. Yeah, which was no fun at all yeah and to make matters worse because the surgery was done during lockdown i was all alone oh no yeah so i was coping with this on my own didn't have my mom my dad didn't have my partner and that was all really tough yeah so i was dealing with intense intense nausea uncontrollable vomiting they had to put an ng tube down into my tummy to try and relieve some of the pressure yeah and it was honestly just horrible Mm -hmm. and the worst part of all of this was that the nurses and doctors kept saying that everything i was experiencing was normal okay and that i didn't have anything to worry about and 
you know, I can see why they thought that at this point in time, because after you do have surgery to your small intestine, especially, it can react quite angrily and result in vomiting. And that's at the time what they thought it was. They were like, she's just had surgery. The intestine's a bit grumpy for lack of a better term. That's why she's being sick. But this went on for seven days. Seven days. Seven days. I was on six different anti-nausea drugs, vomiting through the NG tube, as I said, which you know, shouldn't really be possible because it's yeah. meant to, to suction everything out. And it was just awful. I've got little recollection or memory yeah. of that time because of partly all the drugs I was on, but also because it was such a horrific experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I lost a lot of weight because yeah. I wasn't eating anything and everything was just coming straight back out. Yeah. And it was finally on that, even, it might have even been that, yeah, it was day eight. So, exactly you know a week and then the next day after the surgery that they thought okay this has gone on a little bit too long you for a ct scan just to check if anything's you know not quite right and it was so lucky that they did wow what had happened immediately in the ct scan they realized that the muscular layer in my stomach hadn't been cut wide enough to allow intestine to to um, drain any content so the intestine was in the right place but the muscles around it were essentially choking it off so that's why nothing was coming out because it was hitting that wall of muscle and you know if it doesn't come out one way it's got to come out the other way Yeah. yeah wow so what can they do to help relieve that so i had to have another surgery yeah it's the short answer so Once they realized what had gone wrong, I was immediately transferred to North Shore Hospital in Auckland, which is a public hospital, because at that point it was deemed an emergency. And partly because I couldn't live like that, but also because it had been so long since I'd had any nutrition that my blood work was also really critical. And that if they didn't reverse the problem and allow me to start getting some form of nutrition, um, whether it was liquid or even soft foods, I would have needed to go on to what's called TPN, which is kind of nutrition that goes into your veins if you can't eat. And that's not something that anyone wants to do. So, yeah. Wow. So you get transferred to North Shore Hospital and you're still having to be on your own because of lockdown this was another silver lining is that north shore actually had a bit more of a lenient policy okay and they allowed one visitor between the hours of like nine to four or whatever it was that is like a really strange blessing in disguise i'm so thankful that that was able to happen (laughs) and really weird that the private hospital didn't allow visitors but public did but anyway i didn't really care at that point because my mum was able to see me and that was oh that was probably one of the best feelings in the world to see her after all of this had gone down and just to know that I had support with me and helped me get through yet another surgery that was unexpected yeah Yeah. and then once you have that second surgery do things start to work as they should absolutely so second surgery immediately resolved everything it was the biggest relief you know it 
believe me the ostomy was working yeah it okay. was working overtime <laughs> but I was just so thankful that it was doing something yeah and yeah things started to um get better day by day and I was able to start to drink a little bit of liquids and then eventually try some soft food like mashed potatoes or whatever yeah. and it all went fine so yeah eventually I was discharged and had to learn how to deal with ostomy life all on my own yeah what was that adjustment like when you then went home and then had to cope yeah luckily there's quite a lot of support for new ostomates that's what we call ourselves yeah and that the district nurses from the dhb will come to your house a few times for the first few weeks okay and help you to learn all about your ostomy bag and how to care for it And that was really invaluable because otherwise you'd be thrown completely in the deep end and like, what the heck is this? Like, how do I, how do I even manage it? But now the the support that I got from the nurses was amazing. And also even through Instagram and the Facebook community, being able to ask questions and figure out all the little tips and tricks to make life easier. That was so helpful. So I guess, like you mentioned, you're nine months in to having an ostomy bag how are you finding things now I guess compared to life before the ostomy bag it is absolutely like night and day um it this has been the best decision that I've made for myself I you know in some ways regret that it took so long and that I wish it had been done sooner because I have completely got my life back wow all of the minor things that were so difficult for me before like I said, even going to the grocery store, yeah. like that's just not even a, an issue for me now. As I was telling you before we started recording, I spent the weekend in Wellington. So I, I got on a plane, which yeah. was completely like a total challenge for me before I spent the weekend eating and drinking and walking around town and not having to second guess every few minutes where's the nearest bathroom yeah it's it's completely changed my life and I think that's the message that I really want to get across is that having an ostomy is it's not a death sentence like I think people have really negative perceptions about them but if they help you to live your best life then it's the best thing for you and I think there are just so many myths or like misinformation surrounding ostomy bags as well. Completely. If people just took the time to actually learn the information, they'd realize that a lot of their ideas surrounding this are actually completely false. Completely. And I think people are scared about what they don't know and what they don't understand. Yeah. So if you don't have a friend or know someone with a stoma, then I can see how it might be or feel a little bit overwhelming. But yeah. yeah, there's definitely a lot of completely false myths around there that I would really like to see dispelled. Like people with ostomies, yeah. we don't smell, we can do everything no. that you can do. We can go swimming, I can wear a bikini, like, yeah, there's very few restrictions in the way that I live my life compared to anyone else. Just incredible. Do you think that if you could go back and say something to Cheyenne who is still doesn't even have a diagnosis yet perhaps has just had an accident at work 
if you could go back and say something to her, what would you say, knowing everything that you know now? I think first thing, I'd just give myself a ginormous hug because, like I said, things got really dark there and I thought that it would never get better. So I'd console myself and say that, you know, it might take time and you might get put through the ringer with all these different doctors and procedures, but we're going to get there. Your persistence is going to pay off. You'll get an answer and you know, there's going to be an outcome for you that will make things better. Going through all of this from diagnosis to deciding to get an ostomy bag and go through with this procedure, these are all like really big things that have happened in your life. What has your support network been like and how has your mental health gone throughout all of this? Yeah, support network has been a big thing. I've got the best parents in the world and an amazing partner. And the three of them were my absolute rock throughout this entire time, especially with the recent surgery, especially credit to my partner because he didn't know anything about ostomies before we started dating. And I'm sure he didn't imagine himself, you know, ultimately dating (laughs) someone with a stoma. So it was quite a lot to get his head around, but he's been an absolute champion and learning about everything and just being my number one supporter. But Yeah, in terms of mental health, it was really rough, basically up until my surgery. And that was just feelings of despair and also feeling really isolated because people don't talk about this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I felt like, you know, perhaps I was the only one in the world experiencing these things, which is completely false. But you know, when you're a teenager or even in your early 20s, that is kind of where your mind ends up. And my friends were, they were great, but ultimately they didn't quite understand just how bad everything was. And, you know, when you cancel on social occasions a few times, you stop getting invited and just sort of things like that were really getting me down as well. And I guess a condition like EDS, it is classified I suppose as a as somewhat of an invisible illness definitely have you found any challenges of that of just being like well from the outside everything looks okay (laughs) yeah for sure I think that was probably most tricky in the workplace because yeah I I can put on a smile and kind of get through a lot of things even if on the inside I'm really struggling or yeah trying to cover up all of this that's going on in the background and I think that was potentially hard for my colleagues at previous workplaces to understand because I'd have these horrible flare-ups and take days off and then maybe the next day things would be better and I'd be in the office and they were like oh you're better now and I'm like well no I'm not better like this (laughs) it's not something that just gets better overnight it's not like a cold where you're sick one day and fine the next like this is something long term that I'm going to have for the rest of my life now I've got better coping tools and um, my ostomy that makes things better but I still do have EDS and I still do have problems associated with that yeah what has inspired you to be so open and to share your story with me today and everybody listening but also on Instagram what has inspired you to be so open about this journey that's a great question and I think it comes back to when I first you know found out that 
I might need an ileostomy. And the first thing that I did was to go on Instagram. And when I saw all of these people living really full lives, despite having an ostomy, that really, really inspired me and knew that, and I knew that things would, would get better for me. So I, when I had my surgery, I thought, well, I'm going to do that as well. I'm going to document everything I'm going through because if someone like me sees what I'm doing and I help them get through a rough time in their life and see that it can be a positive change, then I've done my bit and I've made hopefully the world a slightly better place (laughs) for someone. Absolutely amazing. And I just feel so grateful that you have trusted me and that's so chronic to share a bit more about your story here today. So thank you so much. No worries at all. It's been an absolute pleasure to be on the podcast and yeah, long time listener, first time <laughs> potties. So hopefully I've done okay. <laughs> you have done amazing. It's been me that's been having all this brain fog <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you would like to follow Cheyenne, you can find her over on Instagram at Shiba underscore space. And as always, a link will be in the show notes. Also in the show notes, you can find how to follow That's So Chronic on Instagram and TikTok, as well as how to sign up to the monthly newsletter and where to reach out if you would like to share your story. It is always such a treat to be in your ears every Tuesday. So a big thank you to you for listening to another episode. Don't forget to press follow if you aren't already so you never miss an episode. And I'll see you next week.